First of all, um, I'm probably going to ask Bruce to come back on a weekly basis to pump me up about my sermon so you guys will listen to it. Um, and uh, I, I want to just share with you a little bit um, of a, on a personal note. Um, I am the, the 22nd of 22 grandchildren on my dad's side of the family. So big family. My dad was one of seven siblings. They all had a bunch of kids. And there was 22 of us, and I'm the youngest. And in addition to that, I lived, grew up really close to my grandmother's house. So being her youngest grandchild and living close, I might have got a little spoiled. <laughs> and, and she and I just developed this relationship that, that was so dear to me right up until the moment that she went to, the, to be with the Lord. And, and we used to spend a lot of time together. And, you know, as a kid, when they would sort of drag you off to grandma's house, that was kind of boring. But as I became a teenager, when I, I remember getting my driver's license. And one of my first thoughts was, I'm going to be able to now go see grandma whenever I want to. And I, and I would jump in my car and go over to grandma's house. And I would take her on errands that she needed to run because she didn't drive. And we would just spend time together. We would talk and listen to one another and and uh, it was interesting because um, as she got older, you know, there's a great thing about old people. They don't have a filter. <laughs> the older you get, the less of a filter you have. And, and so you just say stuff and you're not worried about whether people think you, what they think, right? So my grandmother used to just say stuff. The thing is, she was a very wise woman. And so a lot of the stuff she said was profound. I used to just sit and listen to her. I used to ask her questions. Grandma, what was it like before there were cars? What was it like when there was no radio, no telephone, no television? Like, she would tell me all about those days, the turn of the 20th century. And it was just fantastic to spend time with her and to learn from her. And what I noticed was that um, she would always try to turn the conversation around to something important. You know, I would be talking about this or that or the other thing, and then she would ask me a question that would just go right to my heart to try to, to, try to talk about the things that really, really mattered, the important stuff. And, and for me as a young man, hanging out with this old woman was just one of the greatest privileges of my life. When, when she was really proud that I became a pastor, and, and when I became a pastor, my parents would, would bring her every month or two to to church and they would drive up and, and we'd make a day of it and they would sit, my grandmother would sit right in the front row, right where Terry's sitting right there and, and she would just be beaming when I was introduced and I stepped up and I was the pastor and had the Bible in my hand. Boy, she thought that was the greatest thing in the world. She was just beaming and then I would start to preach and within five minutes she would go to sleep. <laughs> Just like some of you. And, and she'd be there with her head on her chest the whole time, you know, and me trying not to be distracted by her. And, and then at the end, when it came time to sing the closing song, my father would elbow her and she would sit up and then we would sing a song and then we would all go to lunch together and she would proceed to spend the whole hour at lunch talking about how that was the greatest sermon she ever heard. And, and I... <laughs> I have no idea what preacher she was hearing in her dreams, but he was good, apparently. 
and, and I just miss her, you know, even to this day I miss her, and I miss her wisdom, and I miss her insight. You know what, let me just say a, a quick word off the cuff to some of you that are, you know, young. Get to know somebody who's old. I, I know you think it's not cool, I know you think it's not fun. If you're a teenager, get to know somebody who's old. Um, spend time with people who've been around longer than you have. Um, for some of us, it's getting harder and harder to find people like that, but find somebody who's been around longer than you have. Today, we're going to get to hear from an old person. And I know some of you are thinking, didn't Byron preach last week? <laughs> but I'm talking about a different old person. I'm talking about a person older than Byron. Um, we've been in the book of First John now for a while, and we're about halfway through this process of just hearing from John. I just want to remind you, it's probably a good point to stop and do a little reminder. John, by the time he writes this book, is the last living apostle. The others have all been brutally put to death. And, and by God's grace, he's allowed John to live to a ripe old age. John is now almost 100 years old when he sits down to write the, the letter that we now call 1 John. And when he writes it, I say it's a letter, and I said earlier, it really isn't a letter. It, it, it's, not a, it's not like a, an essay or a blog post. It's, it's a manifesto. It is a statement of doctrine. And it is an old man who knows that he is about to go to heaven, and there are some things he needs to say because if we don't get it, we'll miss everything. And John says... I am going to tell you what matters the most. And in this, these last years of his life, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and tells us what matters the most. And you've already been seeing the theme. It's a very simple book. He begins by saying, listen, what you believe matters. You know, there's an old saying, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as, you, as you're sincere. That is sincerely ridiculous. It matters what you believe. Some things are true and some things are not true. And, and we need to know the truth because the truth sets us free. And we need to believe the truth. And one of the greatest problems that humankind has is that we tend to believe things that are not true and then act as if they are true. And so John says, listen, you got to get it right what you believe. The next thing he says is you have got to obey God. It's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to hear what God has to say. You have to alter your life so that you and God are on the same page in the way that you're living. So belief, obedience, and then the third thing is love. And love is the prominent theme of this book. That's why we're calling this series The Summer of Love. And because you've already heard some sermons from 1 John on love. And you're going to hear another one today, and you'll hear some more as we get into chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to keep going, and he's going to keep coming back. He talks about love, then he talks about something else, then he talks about love, then he talks about something else, and he talks about love, and he just keeps talking about love. It's almost as if in these dying days, John the Apostle, in all of his wisdom, knowing that he has no more time to say anything, thinks love is the important thing to talk about. And if that's true, we should probably be listening. And so essentially, if you show me somebody who can get all the Sunday school answers right, but, but they don't really believe the right things, they don't really obey God, and they don't really love, then, then I don't care what they call themselves, that's not a follower of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Byron did a fantastic job, and he showed us from 
1 John chapter 3, that if your life is characterized by sin, it doesn't matter what you say or, or what church you belong to or what your religious background is or what your religious habits are. If your life is characterized by sin, you can call yourself whatever you want, but you are not a follower of Jesus. And, and you know, one of the things I personally like about John, he's a lot like James, he pulls no punches. He just comes right out. If he steps on your toes, he steps on your toes. And I was talking to somebody after the first service, and, and, and they were saying, you know, man, that was hard to hear. And I said, look, if it's not biblical, you're allowed to complain. But, but if it's the word of God and your toes get stepped on, thank God, because he has some things to say that are going to change our lives. So today we're going to hear what God has to say about the role of love in the Christian life. And, and he's going to keep talking about it as we go. So if you haven't already turned there, find 1 John chapter 3. So back of the Bible, if you get to Revelation, you went too far, go to 1 John and go to chapter 3. And let me just read you the whole passage for context and then we'll come back and begin to dig into it. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So obviously the topic is love. And if you've been to a Bible teaching church even three or four times, chances are you've heard some pastor stand up and tell you that when it comes to love, there are many Greek words for love, right? You guys have heard this? And, and there are actually many. We always talk about three. There are several others as well, but there, there are three that are very prominent. And, and they're, they're the kinds of love that we're familiar with. The first Greek word is eros. And eros is sort of a uh, in, uh, romantic love, oftentimes a sensual love. It's the, it's the Greek word from which we get the word erotic. Uh, and, and eros is all about romance, okay? And, and it's all about that, that attraction between a man and a woman. That's not the kind of love he's talking about. There's another kind of love, phileo, from which uh, it's, the, it's the prefix of the Name of the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo means brotherly love. It's, it's a kind of a love that is deep. It's abiding. It has nothing to do with sort of um, magnetic attraction or romance or anything like that. It has to do with the sense of camaraderie, a sense of oneness, a sense that we always will have each other. I spent some time just a couple of days ago with both of my brothers. We did some things together. And, and I got to tell you, growing up, there was not a single day that went by in which nobody got punched, okay? There, there was a fist fight every day in my house. And yet, 
now that we're all old and fat and bald, we <laughs> hang out together and we just have the greatest time. Now, I'm not saying nobody gets punched. I'm just saying we still have this love for one another that is deep and abiding. That's phileo. That is also not what he's talking about here. And then the, the, the one you've probably heard is the word agape. And agape is this kind of love that is so profound and so deep that it's completely giving. It is unbreakable. It is uh, undeniable. There is nothing that can come between uh, one who loves this way and the object of his love. And, and I'd love to give you examples, but every example that I come up with falls short except for one, God. God is the only one who loves perfectly in this agape kind of a way. It's self-sacrificing. It is giving. It, it is always uh, committed. And, and this is the word that he's using here, okay? Now, what's interesting is he's using the verb form of the word. He's not actually using the word agape. The word that he uses is agapeo. And the word agapeo is love in action, in other words, he's not talking about how you feel. He's not talking about what you think. He's talking about what you do. Now, I, I, my wife and I went to a wedding this past Sunday. Um, we took off after church and headed out, made a couple of hours drive and got to this wedding. And a lot of you know Edie Miskell from Raining Hope. She's kind of a part of our church family as well. And her daughter, Kiana, got married, and I've known Kiana since she was an ankle biter, and so we, we went, and, and it was just a great time, and it was really cool, you know, it was sort of the typical thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys sitting there going, man, it's hot, and a lot of women dabbing their eyes, kind of the typical, you know, wedding thing, and they're, they're holding hands, and this is them, by the way, that's, that's yeah, that was taken on Sunday, and and they wrote their own vows, you know, and boy, it was moving. It was just, wow, this is absolute deep commitment that they made to one another. And then the pastor led them in, in the covenant part of it, where they, they, they took a vow between them and each other and God. And it was powerful and it was moving. But let's just imagine, I, don't tell her I said any of this, but let's just imagine <laughs> that... That, that, you know, probably today they're probably coming home from their honeymoon. They're going to set up house and really get into living. Imagine that they get home and they just decide that, you know what? They're pretty much going to ignore each other for the rest of their lives, <laughs> right? Or, or, or let's say that they just decide, you know, um, they're, they're not even going to ignore each other. They're going to mistreat one another. It becomes abusive and it becomes hurtful and it becomes competitive and it becomes all of those kinds of things. If they ignore each other, they take advantage of each other, compete with each other, and, and they spend a lot of time out there trying to connect to make other romantic relationships outside of their marriage, are they loving each other? Certainly not in the way that, that John is talking about. Um, and and what, if they, what if they were doing just fine and then they had a little spat, and there was a little problem and a little tension in the marriage, and they just said, well, then forget it. And they just filed for divorce and left. Would they be loving each other? Not in the way that John is talking about. If they were unwilling to sacrifice for one another, but instead they were just using each other and, and, and trying to one-up each other, is that loving one another in the way that John's talking about? No. But they took vows. Like, there's wedding pictures and everything. Do you, do you see, some of us as Christians, we sort of have taken our vow 
when we became a Christian and we said the sinner's prayer and we invited Jesus into our lives and we said, I'll follow you and we meant it. But then something happened and we get distracted and we get off pace and we stop living the love that God has called us to live. And what John is saying by using the verb form of agape is, listen, it is not enough to even feel this strong love. You have to do something about it. I mean, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? He loved the world, agape, so he gave. When you love by the verb, you act. And if God had just said, boy, it makes me sad that there's such a mess. Oh, well, I guess they'll go to hell. That would not be love. So God, who is love, sets the example for us. And what's interesting is that it's a high calling to love one another, but it's nothing new. If you go back to verse 11, 1 John 3, he says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You've heard this message from the beginning. When is the beginning? Uh, the beginning. You got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because that's where he goes. He talks about Cain and Abel, right? The two firstborn sons of Adam and Eve. And, and what happened? Uh, they made a sacrifice. God accepted one and didn't accept the other. Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted. He was jealous of his brother. And so what did he do? He killed him. That's what you do when you're selfish, when it's all about you, right? And he says, don't make it like that. So we go all the way back to the garden, or we could go to the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm sure that everybody in this room has the Ten Commandments memorized. If you just remember to recite one every time you break one, you'll remember them even better. But if you remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, right? And in Exodus chapter 20, you have the Decalogue, these Ten Commandments. The first four are commandments about how to love God. And the last six are commandments about how to love other people. So, so if you were to just break down the Ten Commandments and go, well, what, what's the major point? The major point is love. And, and, and it continues. Go to the Law of Moses. And, in fact, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. So it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Go to Leviticus very early in the Old Testament. And go to Leviticus chapter 19. And I just want us to look at one verse here, and then that will springboard us back to the New Testament. This is the Law of Moses right? So when the Pharisees talked about the law, this is what they're talking about. The law of Moses, the thing that had been memorized, the thing that had been taught for thousands of years. Here's what it is. Law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's the Cain and Abel story. Don't do what Cain did, taking vengeance, but instead love your neighbor. And don't just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now I'm going to take a second and go off on a tangent, get something off my chest here. The next time I hear some psychobabble guy say that you can't learn to love others until you learn to love yourself, I think I'm going to scream. Okay. Jesus is not teaching, learn to love yourself and then you'll be able to love others. What he's saying is, hey, everybody, you know how you already love yourself? Love other people like that. You go, well, I don't know. Sometimes I get down on myself. I don't really like myself. He didn't say like yourself. 
He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Now, when you are hungry, do you not see to it that you get some food? When you are sleepy, do you not see to it that you get some rest, right? This is what we do. It's sort of the human nature. We take care of ourselves so much so that there's a common saying, a bumper sticker you see on cars, look out for number one, which I agree with. I just have a diff- different opinion of who's number one. But, but this look out for number one idea, it's not biblical. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Make sacrifices for your neighbor like you would make sacrifices for yourself. And Jesus reiterates this in the New Testament. And he does it again and again. But let's look at one example, the book of Matthew. New Testament, first book, book of Matthew, chapter 22. And in Matthew 22, verse 37... We're going to actually pick it up in verse 34 because I feel like we need the context. Matthew 22, 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Now, by the way, this is, when it says it's a lawyer, it doesn't mean this is a guy who sues you. It means among the priests, he was an expert in the law of Moses, Okay. What I just read to you from Leviticus, he was an expert in that. And so he asked Jesus a question, verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and all the prophets. You can take the whole Old Testament, says Jesus, and you can wrap it up just like I tried to do in the Ten Commandments and say, love God and love people. That's it. That's what the whole Bible is about. Jesus reiterated this over and over and also, and better yet, he set the example because none of us had ever seen this before. Jesus comes along. He leaves the throne of heaven and enters the womb of Mary so he can go to the cross of Calvary so that he can die for us. And he sets the example over and over again. Jesus and his disciples, these men that are always with him, uh, they're walking along the way and they come to some leper on the side of the road. And what do the men say to the lepers? Get away, get away. And what does Jesus say? Bring him here, bring him here. The blind, the leprous, the children, uh, women, foreigners, anybody that is marginalized in that society, Jesus is reaching out to. Those guys often saw themselves as bodyguards for Jesus. (laughs) I think they didn't understand. Jesus doesn't need anyone to defend him, right? Jesus is about touching people and changing their lives. And so he sets this example for us. And he said, That the surest mark of being a genuine follower of Jesus is this issue of love. Turn over to John chapter 13. Now, not 1 John, but the big book of John. Go to John chapter 13, and let me just read to you a couple of verses. This is Jesus speaking. A new commandment, this is verses 34 and verse 35, John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, it's interesting because 
earlier in 1 John, he said it's not a new commandment. It's what you've had since the beginning. Now, Jesus comes along and says, uh, this is a new commandment, so who should we believe? How about we believe them both? Because it's the Word of God. And what did Jesus mean when he said it's a new commandment? Look again what he says. A new commandment I give to you. So he hadn't spoken this commandment to them yet. That you love one another. That sounds old. Even as I have loved you. That's new. They had never seen that before. Even the concept they'd never even heard of. To, to love completely sacrificially. You know what he, what he was saying is? Agape one another. I know you've never seen it before, but watch me. I'll show you how. Even as I have loved you so that you love one another. And then verse 35, by this, the fact that you love one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what's the thing that we so commonly hear today from people in our culture who have rejected Christ? They're like, you know what? I like Jesus. It's his people that I don't like. I feel fine about Jesus' teachings. It's his followers that I have a problem with. What does he say? If you're loving the way that I love, everyone will know you're with me. They will never get it confused. And so many people today are going, listen, I, I don't think I can believe in Christianity because of the Christians. Now, some of that may be unfair, and some of it we have to own. We need to love people. And he says that's the one sure sign of being one of his followers is love. And now it's 60 years since Jesus has walked the face of the earth as John is writing this, and he's still saying the same thing. Listen, it's all about love. Don't let it be about anything else. The message hasn't changed. And then he illustrates it for us. Don't be like Cain, but instead be like Jesus. And he uses that verb, agapeo. It's about serving and caring and meeting needs. If you want a simple definition of the, of the verb agapeo, agapeo is meeting needs. It's practical love, sacrificial love for someone else's benefit. Agapeo is meeting needs. And that's where some of us get off track. You know, some, some of us, I think we mean well, but we don't realize what we're doing. Some of us, we say, I just, I love everybody. No, you don't. Not like this. You can't love everybody. You have to love somebody. And you can love a whole bunch of somebodies. But you can't just generally love because that moves love back to the point of feeling or thinking. If you're going to act on your love, there has to be an object of that love. You have to love a person. You got to find someone to love. And, and I think sometimes we say we love everybody and we end up loving nobody and we feel fine about ourselves. That kind of love goes way beyond what we say and what we feel and it gets down to what we do. And I praise God that so many of you are involved in doing love. I mean, just what a cool day this is today. Um, in the first service, we prayed over Ed and Vicki Baldwin because they're heading off into their mission field to care for families of disabled children. Uh, just now, we prayed for the Siders because they are full-time in the mission field, and even when they're, they're here, they're acting as missionaries and ministering to people. 
Uh, last week, we prayed for and sent off Kelly Marley as she headed to Rwanda in the middle of Africa, where there are people she's never met, does not know, but she knows they have needs. And she goes, I'm going to go meet those needs. And by the magic of modern technology, I've already seen pictures of her online meeting needs of people she didn't even know just three days before. Love is meeting needs. And some of us have thought that if I prayed the sinner's prayer, if I accepted Jesus, whatever in the world that means, if I walked the aisle of some Baptist church or some, some um, crusade somewhere, if, I, if I've been in the waters of baptism, if my name is on the register of some church, then that's the definition of a Christian. And John says, I beg to differ. And by the way, Jesus says that too. And, and a lot of us, I think, um, took our vows with God. And then things got rocky and not the way we thought they would go. And we haven't been living out our love. And God says, that's got to change. When it comes to the way we relate to God, when it comes to the way we relate to others, we haven't kept our vows. And friends, this is a command to love, not a suggestion. And the evidence of a changed life for the Christian is the fact that we actually do love others. We actually put them first. We actually go out of our way sacrificially to meet their needs. So back in 1 John, I know we're bouncing around, back to 1 John... And in chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is irrefutable evidence of new life in Christ. It should be evidence for us. Look what he says. He says, verse 14, we know. He's not even talking about others who are judging us. He's talking about us. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So some of us need to look at our hearts. Now, resist the temptation to think about your spouse's heart, your kid's heart, your parent's heart, your neighbor's heart. Think about your heart. How does your heart hold up to the love test? Not your doctrine, not your church membership, not your claims, your heart. Do you love? And does it ever exit your heart through the hands and feet? Does it ever exit your heart through the wallet and the pocketbook? Does it ever exit your heart through time and investment in others? People who have been born again live lives that are characterized by unselfishness and kindness and grace. Just as Byron showed us last week, people who are not born again live lives that are characterized by selfishness, destruction, and sin. And, and what does he say? If you have hatred in your heart, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And so John goes, yeah, you're just a murderer. So what's it going to be? 
If you're a follower of Christ, your life will be characterized by love that meets needs. And if, if love is not prominent in your life, then you have reason to ask some serious questions about your own relationship to God. We talk about being saved or not saved. I think we need to talk about being a follower of Christ or not a follower of Christ. And Christ loves. And according to John, love is costly. Look again, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Guys, the world has heard what Christians have to say. They have read our picket signs. Have they watched us love them? Love not just in word, with your mouth, but in deed and truth. James says the same thing in the book of James. So here's the bottom line. A faith that does not love others is not true saving faith, which should make us all a little bit uncomfortable about the condition of the church in America. So just like John, James tells us that anybody who will not meet the needs of others cannot call themselves a follower of Jesus. Now, does that mean that you are responsible to meet every need in every person? No. Does it, does it mean that you're responsible to say yes every time someone asks you to do something? No. But it does mean that your heart belongs to God, and therefore whatever God wants to do with your time, with, that, with your money, with, with your car, with your food, with your jacket, whatever God wants to do, He gets to do for others through you. Now, this is a big deal for two reasons. The first is some churchgoers have deceived themselves. There's a lot of people who have their name on a church roll somewhere and they're like, everything must be fine between me and God. Listen, John says, if, if love is not present, you should really check yourself. And you go, well, but, but the preacher said, if I say this prayer, okay, I know what the preacher said. But what does the Bible say? Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. I'll tell you the story. Matthew 25. It's the story that is commonly known as the sheep and the goats. It says that when the Son of Man returns and all of His holy angels with Him, then He will separate the nations before Him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You think, wow, He's going to separate the nations. How strange is that? It's going to be this nation over here and this nation. No, that's not what it means. There's going to be two nations. The word nation means people group. There's going to be two groupings of people in the end. And it's not going to be race, and it's not going to be language, and it's not going to be skin color, and it's not going to be geography. How are you going to be separated in the end? It says you're either a sheep or a goat. Now, sheep and goats are a lot alike. They're a lot alike in many ways, but they are not the same. And Jesus says he's going to separate the nations before him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he's going to say to the goats... You're cast into utter darkness. 
Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was naked, you wouldn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was sick, you didn't care for me, and on and on. And they will understandably be shocked, and they will address him as Lord. And they will say, Lord, when did we not take care of you? And Jesus will say, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of my brothers, you did not do it to me and he will cast them out. And, and with the sheep, he will have a similar conversation, but it's just the opposite. He will say, enter into the rest of your heavenly Father. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Right on down the line. And they too will say, Lord, honestly, we don't remember seeing you naked or hungry or thirsty or in prison or sick. When did we help you? And he will say, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Enter into your rest. Now listen, let me be clear. This is, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that your works determine your salvation. Here's what I am saying. Your salvation determines your works. If you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, you're defined by loving what are you defined as? So number one, too many people have deceived themselves, and we need to check ourselves. And guys, as your pastor, I got to tell you, it, it haunts me, the thought, that somebody could have been a member of this church for days, weeks, months, or decades, and, and heard the teaching from the pastors who preach here every Sunday morning, and, and, and gotten involved and done all the stuff that we do, and one day stand before Jesus and he will say, I never knew you. And you, you say, but I was a member of Grace Fellowship. Here's my membership card. <laughs> Guys, that terrifies me. That's a horrible thought. And so I run the risk that in saying some of the things I'm saying this morning, I'm stepping firmly on your toes and somebody's going to get offended and go, you know, this, that was not a very funny sermon. That wasn't very easy to hear. I didn't really like that sermon. I don't think I'm coming back. I'll live with that. But I'm not going to live with you thinking that you can live without love and still be a follower of Jesus. And so that's the first reason. The second is too many people are rejecting Jesus because they don't see him in his church. And we got to do something about that. A lot of the people I talk to who are not interested in Jesus, I start to talk to them about their arguments and their arguments are weak and my argument wins and they still don't want Jesus. You know why? They've been watching us. By us, I mean people who bear the name Christian and they're not impressed. And they say, if that's what it is, I don't want it. Now, again, is that judgment all fair? No. But some of it is. And we got to ask ourselves, what is the evidence of my claim? You could be Mr. Apologetics. You could answer every question. You could know what happened to the dinosaurs and when the flood took place. And you could explain all of the details that everybody has a question about. But if you don't love, nobody's going to care. So I'm going to wrap it up with this. How is your love life? How are you doing at loving other people? Maybe just start here. How are you doing at loving the family members in your family? Start easy. 
Maybe that's not easy. Start somewhere. How are you doing in your household? How are you doing in your neighborhood? How are you doing at work? How are you doing loving people who are hard to love sometimes? How's your love life? Are you sacrificing? Are you meeting others' needs? Or is it just here and here? Are you putting others first? Are you laying down your life? Jesus said, greater love is no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Who? I'm going I'm to ask you to get specific and then we'll close. You don't have to answer this out loud. In your mind, though, I want you to try. Who do you need to love better? Not just people in general. Get a name, get a face. Might be two or three or five or ten. Who do you need to love better? Because I want you to leave here doing love, not just thinking love. Who do you need to love better? Be specific. And what are you going to do about it? Let's stand together and we'll pray.